Hello and welcome to the Switch It podcast. Players are in the nets, test matches are in the schedule, and like a rusty gate, we're all getting back in the swing. Summer is coming, or at least that's the hope. In the meantime, while keeping fingers crossed for the COVID-19 curve, we thought we'd take another little trip down memory lane. They say the past is another country. In this case, one that's rubbish at cricket. Yes, it's time for another magical misery tour, as we revisit England in the 90s. Previously, we went back through the back catalogue of Windy's Woes. This time around, our focus is going to be the Agony of the Ashes, a rivalry so one-sided it wouldn't so much tip the scales as obliterate them entirely. (laughs) As before, I'm joined by a couple of battle-hardened vets who survived to tell tales. Mark Butcher made his debut at Edgbaston in 1997, the only time in the decade that England won a live Ashes test. Fair to say it was downhill from there. Andrew Miller, meanwhile, sat up through three tours down under, which was probably about as pleasant as watching Merv Hughes drink a milkshake without a straw. How's it going, Butch? Uh, yeah, yeah, before we go into the uh, before we go into the old hits, I think you've got some new ones coming out soon. Yes, twelfth of June. Twelfth of June. Two new two new songs. Two, uh, two new um, very small revenue scre- revenue streams. Make sure you stream them, people. <laughs> get, very get important here. That's why I'm living in the shed at the moment. <laughs> get the plug in um we're all about the streaming uh these days miller i mean you've been preparing for this pod by putting yourself in the shoes of uh ted dexter raymond illingworth and co i think you've even you've even picked a, a certain ma butcher in your uh fancy 90s team i certainly have yes um a bunch of mates of mine from our uh, wisdom.com days of uh, uh, instigated by the inestimable rob smythe have, have, have done a draft of 1990s cricketers and so it was done in the in the same uh, snakes and ladders style of the of the hundred drafts so i w- i went fourth so i got two picks at the end and then the others came back and forth and yeah we ended up with some incredibly random teams um but yeah as i say i got butch and mark laffle opening for me um Gus was my first pick, followed by Tuffers because I had to get the best spinner in the in, in the shed. NASA's my captain. Uh, yeah, it's all it's all all up and down. But yeah, I, uh, Butch got me two tons yesterday in a warm up game. So yeah, we're well set. Oh man, well that's I mean that's the worst logarithm of all algorithm of all time. If I got runs in a warm up game, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, play, you're, play, you're playing the, the, the fifth eleven, um, the, the team the team of, of dregs that weren't picked up that didn't get in the four that didn't get in the four teams. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, you spent your runs in the in the warm up game. Yeah, what which... the hell was I doing that? For? Well, anyway, go on, move on. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some actual warm up games to to talk about, uh, and, and then some. Uh, let's get strapped in. Um, England, of course, took a battering in 1989 when a team deriders the worst to leave Australia rocked up here and won four mm. nil. If that was a shock, what followed was either awesome or awful, uh, depending on your point of view. England won just uh, five Ashes tests in the 1990s, uh, only once with the urn still in play, lost 16, drew six. Um, I mean, Butch, there were moments of optimism, um, but for the most part, it was a rivalry in name only. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I reckon so. Um I mean, the interesting thing is, is the way the way that it started. You, you rightly mentioned the '89 series under Gower um, and the four 0 loss, and, and and Gower storming out of the uh, out of the press conference, holding on to a can of four X 
because uh, <laughs> he had theatre tickets. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> the amateur era was still very much in swing, and it didn't stop really until we got to the to the end of the next decade. Um, but you know, under sort of the, the weird thing is, is that under Mickey Stewart and, and Graham Gooch, sort of subsequent to that, or leading into the the ninety two World Cup, England kind of had a this idea of being being younger, fitter, sort of more organised, more of a more of a, a club side. You know, pick twenty players and stick with them. That was the idea at the beginning of the decade. Um, and yeah, they you know lost that ninety ninety one um, Ashes series away from home. Uh, but that should have been, and then you obviously get the World Cup in '92. That should have been the start of things um, getting getting exp- exponentially better over the course of the decade. But the but the amount of U turns, you know, different captains, obviously different ideas, different coaches, um, the ridiculousness of selection um, right the way through uh, the, the decade just sort of you know hamstrung whatever ideas Mike Atherton had um, when he took over from Graham Gooch. Obviously, they lost Mickey Stewart early as well as coach. Keith Fletcher popped in for a little while. Raymond Illingworth came in and burnt the whole lot down and started again um, to, to great effect. Um, then, you know, then Bumble came in and it bumbled, you know, again, sort of went back to Mickey Stewart and wanted this idea of a sort of being a, a club, you know, the 19th county or whatever it is and fitter and more professional, that kind of stuff. But in the meantime, the other lot were, had always been that. And, and they'd also, and they also discovered a bloke called Warren, which kind of, um, made things rather tricky as well. So, you know, any, with any stride that England tried to make to try and match Australia, to try and keep up with them, Australia were always three or four steps ahead and they were, you know, that they were much better at identifying and then sticking with players that they thought were talented and had what it took at the level. Um, Miller, we talked about your, your cricket awakening in the previous pod on, on the Windies um, series in the 90s. Uh, presumably by sort of the 1991 ashes, you were beginning to realise you had awoken into a nightmare. Yeah, well, I, my, my, um, my first real memory of cricket was 1989 ashes. I mean, what a summer to, 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 to be awoken in. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that summer is, you know, that summer is basically the start of the 1990s. That was ground zero for mm-hmm. everything that went on thereafter. It was basically the stripping away of the pretense because the one thing that England had done in the 1980s when actually the, the most fascinating thing about the 1990s is England actually won more tests in the 1990s than it did in the 1980s. They won 26 tests in the 1990s. They won 20 in the 1980s. The trouble is in the 1980s, they also won three out of four series against Australia. They lost 14 tests out of 15 against the West Indies, but no one cares about that. West Indies were a different, different kettle of fish, but you know, both them beating the Aussies on a, on a daily basis, that atoned for everything. Every, every two years, 18 months, along with come the Aussies, they get a pasting and everything was right with the world. And suddenly <laughs> in 1989, that stopped. Alan Border said, you know, this is not a tea party anymore. You're not gonna, not gonna have your glass of water. Thanks very much. And, um, yeah, he rode roughshod over England and, and laid the groundwork thereafter. But yeah, as Butch says, there, there was there, England's initial reaction under Gooch and un, un, under, uh, under Stewart was, was to try and get professional, try to get fit, try to do everything. But what happened in the 1990-91 series was, was catastrophic to what had up to that point been an incredibly optimistic little period for England. Obviously, we talked about the, their success in the West Indies the previous winter, Gooch's mm-hmm. amazing summer in 1990, the 3-2-3 and all that, um, the emergence of Malcolm and Fraser as, as proper bowlers, tough as arriving as well in, in Australia. Yeah. 
there were Atherton. reasons to believe Athers as well. There were reasons yeah. to believe that England had the true core of a proper side, but then their their failure in that 1990 series. I mean, I, even now I still don't know how they <laughs> lost that series three nil. I mean, Gooch described it as as a fart competing with thunder, but it wasn't that <laughs> it wasn't that straightforward. And in the first two tests at Brisbane and at Melbourne, England had significant first innings leads and then lost by 10 wickets and 8 wickets. In the third test, they bloody nearly won, but Carl bloody Rackerman got on the way and, and stonewalled them to a draw that put the series out of reach. In Adelaide, they added 200 and were chasing 450 in the fourth innings and bloody nearly pulled it off. And then they got routed at Perth. So, you know, in four of the five tests, England actually put up a good show and that kind of set the tone for, for England for, throughout the decade. The optimism never quite evaporated in the 1990s, which is why I loved it. You always believe that <laughs> even when England were getting pasted, Better they'd have an Adelaide or they'd have a Barbados or they'd yeah. have a Joburg out around the corner that would just make you believe again. And um, and that's what got me hooked. So, yeah, <coughs> it was traumatic, but it was it was fascinating and, and, and invigorating, actually. I mean, of course, the, the sort of almost the most memorable thing of the entire trip, I mean, which kind of which, which sums it up. I mean, you, you make a, a great point about the fact that England were actually more than competitive in that in that first series of the of the, of the decade it was the Gower incident, wasn't it? You know, you had that, and and the, the splitting of the you know the sort of forty eight fifty two percent split. Of, <laughs> you know, people who were on the side of Gower, they wanted the Cavalier in the side. They wanted you know people blaming Gooch for being and, and Stewart for being too rigid and not allowing. You know the genius of Gower Gow played magnificently in that series, if I if I remember quite quite rightly. I mean, everybody else was getting bullied by Merv and Co. Um, and Gower played sublimely. Um, and that was the last time he, you know, the, no, he then I think he played what ninety two at home against Pakistan and had a, a bit of a rough time against uh, uh, Wacker, I think. But in ninety one, he was utterly magnificent. I mean, you know, I, I remember I sort of remember watching that because it was. Um, my, the first time we'd have been able to see away series in, in Australia in, in their entirety. Obviously, you'd always had the Channel 9 um, highlights before then. Um, and it was it, it was a realisation on me as a very, very young pro. You know, I was, what, how old was I then? Just about 19 or 20. Seeing how hard Gower hit the ball. You know, it was it was languid and it was glorious. But, jeez, he smoked it. Absolutely mm-hmm. crashed the ball to the boundary. You know, the noise it would make off the bat. And, you know, I sort of cemented him as being my, my all-time hero. But the only thing he's remembered for on that trip was, was driving the, driving the uh, you know, flying the plane with John Morris in the back at Brisbane in that warm-up game um, and, and subsequently being, you know, pilloried for it. And that was basically, that was pretty much the end of his career, wasn't it? They kind of, you know, the, uh, and that split between um, the new professionalism and the old um, sort of relaxed ways became, became much more of a fight um, around the public, I guess, than it was in the dressing room. But even so, there was this perception that the, that the team wasn't together in any way. Some were on Gower's side, some were on Gucci's side, and you had this split that never that never healed itself. Um, Tiger Moth, um, just those two words kind of sums up the tour, I suppose, for many. Um, I mean, England had a lot of bad luck as well, Milan, and I think probably it's fair to say on this tour and, and the subsequent one in 94, 95, you know, injuries at inopportune moments. Gooch missed that opener. 
with a, a, a septic hand, I think it was. Um, mm. and, and then I think uh, Alan Lamb, uh, and, and Gus Fraser uh, towards the end of the tour, your, your man, um, hit, didn't play for two years after that. Mm. To deal with Gooch first. I mean, obviously, Gooch was a direct knock-on from the same injury that that, that had basically scuppered England in the Caribbean the previous year when Ezra Mosley broke his hand at Trinidad. That was basically mm. the end of England's hopes of, of of staying in that series. And there's those shocking, shocking Stuart Surridge gloves. I remember I had a couple of because I was <laughs> I was sponsored by them back in the day. Those ridiculous things that look like that look like oven gloves. <laughs> Remember the old SP things, you know, that, that uh, Tony Gregg sort of had. They looked like mittens. Well, sorry, sort of one once that they were shockers, absolutely ridiculous. You would have smashed your hands and smithereens, like just just bumping it into the car door, uh, let alone closing the car door on it. And uh, yeah, so anyway, I digress. But that was that was an issue. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was it was a it was a poisoned hand. I mean, you know, it was, it was career threatening. And so, you know, what of all the moments for that to happen on the eve of the first test when there he is trying mm. to set the set the template? Because you know, the fact that he recovered from that, I mean, partly it uh, shows the length of the tours in those days. But you know, he came back and you know he scored a magnificent hundred in Adelaide in that in that attempt to to pull the series round. Um, but and, he, and Gus Fraser, you mentioned him, and obviously second test. You know, England lose that first test. Fraser Fraser's response is six for eighty two on a, on an absolute road at Melbourne to keep <laughs> keep England brawling. You know, secured a fifty run lead. He'd done his job essentially, but in doing so, he jarred his hip, and and as we know, that that hip never really recovered, and uh, for, certainly for the next two years, and some say never never recovered his his nip fully thereafter. Mm. Um, so you know, it was the the timing of those injuries in particular were 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 very very tricky, and also on the flip side. The timing of uh, Bruce Reed's lack of injury was rather crucial. Along comes Metal Mickey, who, uh, who who barely functioned for for most of his life, but you know, seven foot tall and left arm. All he had to do on on the days he was fit was plonk on a length, and, and you know, some of the collapses that he instigated were just iconic. I mean, you still just you know, even in this day and age, when England lose twenty wickets in a in, in a session, or 20 weeks, 20 weeks in a session, <laughs> too many, but 10 it feels like that session. sometimes. Uh, it yeah. certainly does. But you know, you're looking, looking at the, the collapse that England had in, um, in Melbourne, say, in the second test, when, you know, they've, they've got, a, got themselves a 50 run lead, they're up, they're 100 for one and cruising, and then suddenly they're 100 and, 150 all out, including losing the last six for three. I mean, <laughs> This was this was iconically poor. <laughs> That'll and do it. Six for three is special. I had the the, the misery or the honour of play of batting against Bruce Reed. He'd been retired forever on my first tour of Australia, nineteen eight. Lilac Hill. He played in that game, mm. and off sort of like five paces. Um, he was awesome. He was serious <laughs> bowler. Um, as you say, unbelievably tall, left arm angle, could swing it either way. Um, fit. He was a he was a seriously seriously good cat um, as a as a player, and I was only I was only facing him bowling seventy eight miles an hour. If he was when he was cranking it up, that must have been no fun at all. <laughs> was it? These are the games that sort of um, DK Lilly would also uh, turn up in uh, kind of fairly regularly. That's right. He, he bumped me first ball of that of that tour. <laughs> Roared on by the by the uh, by the lovely folk of uh, of the bush out there in <laughs> Midland, Guildford. Um, a bunch of ockers. I, I remember. I remember watching them. Um, well, watching them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> remember watching them pel- pelting the uh, the MC with bread rolls. He he he, had to, he came dressed up. He dressed up in the full um, baseball sort of padding, <laughs> like a baseball umpire, and 
in full full expectation of being pelted with bread rolls. It was feral, to put it mildly. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, I, I, mean, I mean that's it. I mean, I love, I love this. You mentioned there we sort of gloss over some of the names and some of the players that were in the England lineup on that trip. You know, Lamb and I think Lamb and Smith were batting together at the time when the Tiger Moth went over. Um, you know, so you had <laughs> yeah. Gooch, you had Gower. I mean, this was a this is a, an incredibly experienced side that a lot of the players had experienced winning in Australia before, um, and they just fell in a heap. And this, of course, was before. Warner McGrath, uh, you know, that, that composite, uh, nightmare, um, that terrorized England for much of, well, the, the decade and beyond, but mm. this is, this is pre, uh, pre-warm, pre-McGrath. Um, Gooch, Gooch and, and Mickey's army obviously came back from that, uh, defeated, as you say, Butch went to, a, went to a World Cup final the following year. So, you know, things weren't all bad, but by, by '93, um, Gucci Border Two, the pummeling, uh, it, <laughs> it, it was beginning to get a bit messy. And obviously, the start of that tour, the the first test at Old Trafford, um, England have done all right with the ball. Uh, Mike Gatting is on strike, and um, well, 1992, uh, Wayne's World came out. The following year, England stumbled into Warren's world. Um, <laughs> Shane's world would have been better, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's swing more spin. And, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll hand you over there, uh, uh, Miller. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, what can you say about Warren's, Warren's first ball other than it, it set the agenda for the rest of the decade? I mean, um, put it this way, England, England had had been a team who had had competed, but but using very conventional means. You know, I mentioned Angus Fraser as obviously line and length, and you know Derek Pringle would be very predictable outswing, but you know when he got it right, it was it was absolutely spot on. But in the in the summers of ninety ninety two and then ninety three, England were introduced to absolutely other world genius. Firstly, Wacker with his reverse swing. Just think, what on earth is that? Full-length Yorkers honing in on middle stump, wrecking any hope. And then up pops Warren with, with you know, we'd all heard rumours that leg spin was something and heard of, you know, Robin Hobbs and, and what have you. But this was, this was, this was, this was something else entirely. This was, this, Mate, was, this was. I played against Warney at the, the beginning of that summer. There were two people that, that sort of caught our eye that they had it. We had a warm-up game at the Oval. Surrey sort of, you know, the, the, all the, all of the first class boys sort of missed the missed the game and so we all had a gig, all the the, the second eleven lot. Um so two guys that, that caught our eye on that was this guy Shuttleworth, uh, no, Cracker Holdsworth, that's right, Holdsworth. Yeah. Um who was lightning fast, sort of five foot eight um lunatic from, from New South Wales. And Warney. Now I I batted against Warney in that game, batting at seven or something. And the pitch was green and, and slightly damp. And I swear to you, he turned a ball from the almost missed the cut strip outside my off stump as a left-hander. And I kind of went, tried to get a pad out there to try and, because I'd seen how far it was turning. And the thing bounced, bounced over my, over my, where are we? My right ear from out there, <laughs> over my right ear. Healy took it up here and I kind of overbound it, like thinking, where the hell is that gone? And stumped. I mean, and, and I was kind of like, what the hell was that? I'd never seen a ball spin with that sort of violence before. 
And so we kind of like, well, you know, up in the dressing room, like, wow, we never, <laughs> what the hell is that? You know, is this guy going to play? Because obviously he'd had a bit of a, um, a rough time of it at the hands of Sachin and co in, in India beforehand. But so I, you know, I'd, I'd seen it. And, it, and so when that, obviously it's a very different thing to sort of like be knocking over some, some middle, middle to late order tail enders in a, in a warm up match in front of nobody. Um, but then to come in and do that first ball in an Ashes series is just utterly extraordinary. Uh, but I, I kid you not, the revolutions that he got on that ball and the way it subsequently made it, made it drift before it spun, um, you know, pre, Shoulder injury was was absolutely phenomenal, absolutely incredible amount of spin. And and I mean Miller, he dominated that series with thirty four wickets. I think um, he only bettered that in two thousand and five in terms of you know Ashes returns. But this was you know first ball in the Ashes. Um, getting uh, is is done by the ball of the century, um, and uh, you know it, it, that wasn't a. Um, uh, an anticlimactic start. It was just the, it was you know the, the beginning of uh, of something very um, well awesome. That was mesmerising, absolutely mesmerising. But it, it was it was all all part of the, the the mind games that that came with with the whole worn spiel. I mean, you know, Butch Butch is quite right to say that you know before his shoulder injury, his his spin was incredible. But even after his shoulder injury, his mind was still incredible. He was still able to make you think that he was doing things that he wasn't. And that he was also doing that right at the start of the tour with with Border pulling the strings. He did he, he didn't play in the Texaco Trophy. He was he was shielded from view, and he did play against Graham Hick at Worcester, and Hick scored a hundred. But you know he barely showed him barely showed him a trick. He just you know just just flopped the ball out, gave him nothing, absolutely no clue as to what was about to come, and then suddenly out pops. He's he's always called it a fluke, but you know there, there, there's mm. a, there's a degree of there's a degree of genius behind that fluke he just he just rocks up and ripped it as much as he could knowing full well that if he ripped it as much as he could he could produce something amazing and he truly did and it, it overshadowed everything else that uh that that could have come out of that test i mean peter such everyone forgets peter such for got six for in the first innings he, he looked he looked the real deal for, for england he looked like a guy who could really go on to be a, a major player for england and to my mind he was probably england's best off spinner of of the decade, but you know, it kind of that's a complete sideshow compared to what was going on at the other end. And you know, it it, it just left England England scrambled. You know, Robin Smith wasn't in 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 his sights at that particular moment, but there almost immediately there there became this sort of myth around Robin Smith that he would simply couldn't play spin anymore, and 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 you know that undermined him, and it it, it got. He got into the soul and the fabric of of what could have been a strong England team, um, and eroded it from from within. It was it was it was miraculous what he was able to able to pull off with with one moment of genius. There, but, well, and, and, and that, so the, in, Australia would play two spinners there too, wouldn't they? I mean, yeah, Tim May, Tim May, yeah, Tim May turning it square at the other end, bowling you know real attacking lines, sort of completely sort of the opposite of the way that England England spinners had bowled over the, the previous decade. Holding it as wide as he possibly could get away with, and, and, and turning it back in, and it was a, a you know du- dual threat. I mean, you know, England used twenty six different players in that Test match series. Um, you know, I've got some great names here. I know Miller's, <laughs> Miller's trumped me on a few, but obviously Mark Lathwell, Martin McKay, um, Graham Thorpe made his debut that series. Mark Islet, Martin Bicknell, Matt Maynard, 
Alan Eagleston. Um, you know, these they got through them. They got through plenty of them in uh, back in 1993. St- Steve Watkin, I'll throw another one in. Or not a debutant, I don't think. But, uh... No, not a debutant. He played against the West Indies at Headingley, hadn't he? Mm. I think. Yeah. Um, um, and and came no. good uh, uh, at the end of the summer. So, um, so I mean, you know, you. And Watkin so made what, his debut. What had been what had what had what they'd been trying to do the sort of Stuart and Gooch, um, you know, partnership. Through one reason or another, fell apart. You know, Athers comes in, and Athers wanted to take it, took a young side to the West Indies, and that kind of it wasn't largely successful. But you can understand the way that they were going, and then all of a sudden, you get back to an Ashes series at home. You go down in the first Test match, and just everything gets thrown out the window. It's just panic stations as far as selection is concerned, um, and you know, and you end up getting completely and utterly uh, annihilated at home. Um, you know, by a by by a young sort of tubby blonde lad who spun it miles. Merv, who was ba- Merv, was basically on one leg in that on that on that trip as well, wasn't he? Um, you know, Border was was magnificent, outstanding, but Merv had a, had a groin injury that he carried pretty much right the way through the series. And every single time, you know, you thought England had got themselves to a position of you know the last you know the last couple of overs of the day and everything was looking fine. Merv would come in and knock somebody over, or Warney would do something ridiculous. Um, hopeless. Really, and um, and well, Merv involved when um, a, a, one of the lesser um, remembered uh, bits of that first test, but when um, Gooch punched punched the ball away, uh, giving out handled ball, and possibly um, in a position to save the game, although seeing them were uh, deep in it, uh, then on to to Lords Australia racked up six hundred and thirty two for four declared. <laughs> there was uh, <laughs> um, Athens run out in nine, uh, run out on ninety nine in, in the second innings. Uh, I think there, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Not coming, not coming for a third. Um, you mentioned mentioned Thorpe's debut. Uh, obviously, a, a centurion on debut. Debut the most uh, successful of the four debutants in that game. Um, uh, Mark Lathwell, Mark Islet, and Martin McCake uh, being the uh, the other three. Um, yeah, I mean, Miller England were, this was kind of back, almost back to 1989, but kind of just, just rifling through, uh, the phone book and, and kind of throw, throwing in, you know, almost, uh, anyone who'd, uh, uh, who'd performed in the previous week. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? That the 1989 is iconic for playing for 29 players, but as Butch mentioned, 26 players in, the, in 93 was, was almost, almost every bit as bad. And, uh, and yeah, there were some absolute turkeys in amongst all that. Um, you know, Andrew Caddick came good eventually, but he was very raw when, when, when he, when mm. he made his debut that series. Um, sadly, Martin McKay, I mean, Rob Smythe would remind you that he, he actually bowled a blinder in that Trent Bridge test, which was the closest thing and came to, to stealing a win back until the final test. Um, but, uh, Brendan Julian thwarted them in the end, but his four wickets on a flat, flat one in the first innings were, were a sign that he, he had some pace behind him, but the actual, you know, the real, the real pace man, the guy, the guy who England actually chose as their 10th choice seamer of the summer. Absolutely extraordinary when you consider the, 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 the dross they went to. Devon Malcolm's re- triumphant return at the Oval in, in, in the sixth test of the summer, the 10th seamer that England turned to. And lo and behold, England finally win the test at the, at the sixth time of asking that summer. It's no coincidence. They, you know, they, they, they had Fraser and, and Malcolm reunited. Um, the two guys who, 
who were the only two frontline bowlers that, that that had it had the wherewithal to take it to take it to Australia in that decade. And I was there actually for the um, uh, the fourth evening. I was there for the fourth day, but the fourth evening when, um, when England were already on top in that final test, and Malcolm bowled like absolute wind. He bowled 14 balls, I think it was, against uh, Slater, who played most of them from square leg, and and Taylor. And you know, it was it was obviously a year before his iconic nine for against South Africa. But I, I swear to God, that spell was quicker than anything he bowled uh, the following year. Absolute lightning. He'd been he'd been bottled up. He'd barely featured for England since 1991 summer, and um, yeah, he let rip. And this was <laughs> this was the thing, you know. Um, Steve Waugh said it uh, during the last Ashes that uh, he could not believe that England didn't go to Malcolm every single time. He, he, his, his, his exact words are something along the lines of, "They always went for the for the seamers who could keep it tight, but they never went for the match winners." And that was never more epitomised than in 1993 when you when you you know Martin Bicknell, God bless him, magnificent bowler, but spearhead hostile head hunting bowler that you need to, to to front your attack when you've got Mark Isle at the other end and and a, and a, and a lame Martin McKay not in the same gravy it's uh England needed needed more more of more of um Malcolm more sticking it up them to to have a chance and I think he won of the five tests that England won in the 1990s Malcolm played in four of them which is remarkable really when you when you consider how infrequently he he actually appeared for England in 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 the course of the course of the decade, but you know it, it was he was there at the Oval, he was there at Adelaide in '94, and then two Tests that Butch played in in '97, and that was yeah. that was it for England apart from obviously the, the the Melbourne win as well. Yeah, that's right. Well, Dev didn't even get on that trip, did he? Exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, uh, we've um, discussed before, and we'll discuss again it, the selectoral bingo. I mean, I, I like looking at the the scorecard for um, Trent Bridge, where yeah, Thorpe's debut coming in at six below, uh, where you had Lathwell and Atherton opening, uh, Robin Smith at three, Stewie at four, and Gooch at five. Um, by, yes. by the <laughs> by no, the end of the series, he was back up to opening. But um, I, I, that was one of the. I, I mean, I've got my my book of sort of the interviews that I did for the the nineties documentary, and um, you know, Athers was Athers. He went to the selectors and said to him, "Look, I said this is the one the one thing we've got going for us at the moment is Gooch and Atherton at the top of the order. Why the hell are we? You know, I'm nothing against Mark Lathwell," he said, but. Gooch and Atherton at the top of the order, you know, <laughs> just what's he doing bang at number five? Are you completely crazy? Um, you know, and he was overruled. So, yeah. Um, so by, by, by the end of the series, uh, well, so Gooch steps down. I mean, uh, it, it, sorry, sorry. sorry he, I mean, there was, there was a small amount of, of logic in it that they kind of put him down there to try and, to try and fend off mm. Warren, but. You know, mm. if he was already if he was already ninety not out before that that happened, he might have had a sort of better chance, perhaps. But just nonsense. I mean, you know, nonsense. Like your your <laughs> four your four teams that you picked in that in that ashes ashes thing for or your teams for the nineties, Miller and whoever yeah. it was, you got the chance to pick Alex Stewart, and again he was batting six and keeping wicket. <laughs> I mean, for crying out loud. Well, I, I didn't. He was, he was the first man to go in the draft, and and and, and, and Tom Tom decided that when it when it came, oh. came down to Warren Hegg or Chris Reed as the last remaining wicket keepers, he thought, you know what, Stewie, you have the you have the gloves. We'll, we'll oh, this. But, I mean, even but with yeah. all that hindsight, they're still doing they're still doing the same wrong thing. Yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, isn't that the truth? But I mean, that, that, that summer, though, I mean, you know, in so many ways, it was more 
more dispiriting that summer than 1989 because in 1989 at least England had the excuse of being an absolute shambles. I mean, they, they had the they had the rebel tour going on. They had they had all all manner of complacency. They had, both of them was 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 you know on his last legs and still being revered as as the the guy who's going to turn the series round. And clearly that was beyond him, and certainly in Test cricket in those days. In, 19, in 1993, as I mentioned, we had the, the raw materials for a competitive side. We even had the ridiculous scenario of, you know, Craig McDermott twisting his gut midway through the Lord's Test. And so, you know, he's he's gone lame. He got Mark Waugh taking the new ball in a Lord's Test alongside a half-fit Merv Hughes. And they still, they trounce England. It was... It was just extraordinary. There was uh, there was no mitigating circumstances for England. They were outplayed by the genius of of Warren, in particular, who just got into their brains. Um, but the rest of it was self inflicted. It was yeah, inept selection and, and and a lack of faith in in the few raw materials that that, that they, they had clearly earmarked in spite of everything in the previous three summers. Um, well, and. The- that series saw the end of Gooch's captaincy. Uh, there was a, a win at the Oval, England's first, well, first Ashes Test win since 1987. Um, and I have it written down here somewhere, uh, 2,430 days previously. Um, <laughs> so, you know, obviously, justifiably, everyone was excited by that. Um, Ted Dexter stood down as um, as the chairman of selectors of that series as well. Um, so then, eighteen months later, you're off down under again. Um, Keith Fletcher in charge of the team, and um, Miller. This was this was the series we talked about. Warren's first ball in the Ashes. This was the the series that was um, lost from an English perspective from the very first ball um, when Michael Slater <laughs> slapped. Uh, Daffy DeFrasis through, uh, through Gully, uh, and went on to rattle up, uh, 176 on the opening day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, you know how, how the running theme of this, of the, of the, these pods has been, where was I at, the, at this particular moment? I, I remember vividly, I was, in, I was, I was, I was in my room at school. I was listening to the radio on, under the pillow as, as you did. And, just that first delivery is a very crackly static line. You know how the evocative static lines of old in, uh, through through long wave was, were, you know, you can barely make out the, every other word at times, but that just makes it feel even further away and somehow more more enthralling as a consequence. And just that that sound of the ball cracking through the covers and the roar of the gabber, and just think, oh god, here we go. <laughs> it was just miserable. And um, yeah, it, it, I, I stayed up. I think I managed to stay up the whole night for that one, and um, I don't know why I bothered. It was just, you know, Slater was a genius. Slater was incredible, you know. Yeah. The, and, and another thing, so just to throw back to 993, one of my abiding memories of, of 93 was his century, uh, Lords, where he skipped down the pitch and threw his threw his um his, his bat around and kissed his helmet. He was like he was very much the first guy to to show the full emotion of. Of I've got a hundred and I'm gonna I'm gonna really wet myself about it and now everyone does it but it, it, you know previously everyone was a bit more bit more demure about it anyway that's, that's, I digress but the point is you know he he was you know the dancing bear he was a guy who really took it to to England in <laughs> in, in in a way that um you know he he was overshadowed subsequently by by Hayden and Langer but to my mind Slater was the best opener that 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 um, Australia had in that era because he just changed the Changed the the dynamics of opening. He was, yeah. you know, he was more he Gil was... Christian in his in his in his approach to the game. He just he went after you from ball one, 
and gave yeah. you, you know, if he got in, there was no stopping him. A magnificent player. Yeah, way ahead of his time. Um, and, well, whilst England were being mauled <laughs> on the pitch, they were kind of falling apart uh, off it with uh, injuries again. Um, I mean, and chicken uh, box. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, even even the the physio, uh, Dave Rooster Roberts, I think, um, broke a finger. Or, or uh, yeah, anyway, he came on as a substitute fielder and broke his finger at mid on. I think. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> jo- Joey Benjamin went on that trip. My, my old teammate Benji, um, and he and I think he and Dev were sharing a room, and they both got chicken pox. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, just, the time... it was a shocker. Stewie broke his finger a couple of times, once in a in a warm up game or whatever. So he he played very little part throughout that yeah. series. And it and Goffy, it was sort of Goff Goff's uh, emergence and um, and and Hicks and Hicks non hundred at uh, at yeah. uh, Sydney that were kind of like the main story. And it didn't John did John Crawley make a hundred on that trip? He might have got close. A couple, sure couple of them. They got 70, a couple 70, of 70, 70, 70, 70s, I think, and that's all right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, Crawley, Crawley, Goff were sort of like the two bright moments or the, the two guys who kind of, whose name was uh, was, was was in a better place yeah. um, when they got back uh, than before they went, but uh, but but not really the same for anybody else. But Goff, Goff was magnificent. I mean, um, you know, they're, they're, I, I did a piece recently about my favourite tail enders, and um, my my picks were, were were Devon Malcolm, Chris Martin, obviously the the godfather of inept batting, uh, Stuart Broad, just because he's become a comedy tail ender after actually being quite a competent batsman, uh, Courtney Walsh for obvious reasons, and Darren Goff from that original vintage of Darren Goff, nineteen ninety four to basically nineteen ninety five. Um, he was just this cavalier, ass slapping follow through, just. No holds barred. He was so so full of bravado that people actually thought he was an heir to both of them. And he finished his career basically backing ten Jack and, and hardly buying a run, almost from the moment that someone tried to teach him to bat properly. But in that yes. glorious glorious little window on that you know, starting in the ninety ninety four home summer against um first New Zealand and then then at the Oval against South Africa where he played an absolutely vital role in turning that game around and then, you know, Cavalier innings at, at Brisbane and then this half century at Sydney. He was the most magnificent, uplifting sight for 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 a beleaguered England fan who thought that the that, that basically the team had no ticker. I mean, he was living proof that there was ticker running through that side, and um, it was a crying shame that he broke his foot in a in a, in a one day game and limped out the tour because while he was while he was hooning it down, you know, bowling wheels and in swing and you know all the rest of it, the six for at Sydney and all the rest of it, he was he was giving giving England a you know, England were, were competing. It, 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 you know, that, that Sydney game was magnificent. There was absolutely no justification for England to still be in the series at 2-0 down after, you know, Warren's hat-trick at, at, at Melbourne and mm. basically looking like a looking like a million miles away from competitiveness. And then suddenly they have, you know, have Australia 116 all out of where it was and foot on the throat time. Uh, get away with it for various reasons, not least... Graham Hicks' sluggishness and getting to that hundred that never was, and uh, yeah, the moment slipped away. But that, that Sydney game was a yet another of those examples of the the the, the optimism, the, the the unexpected moments that England were able to produce in the nineteen nineties. That right from the moment of absolute zero hope, they would produce a performance that make you think, oh "My God, these guys are still still brawling." Yeah, of course the um, uh, the Hick declaration. I mean, Butch, how how 
that that being in that position like where, where you're expecting uh, to be given a bit of time to, to get to a a personal milestone like that obviously team goals override um mm. the the individual but um was it always kind of viewed that Athers dealt him a, a, a slightly harsh hand there i don't know i mean i could see it from both sides because on the one hand um you're you're, you're ahead in the test match you're looking to make a declaration come out and try and bowl australia out and so normally in those circumstances, the dressing room is absolutely buzzing. You know, you come back in and you, everyone's slapping each other on the back and you can't wait to get back out there and, uh, you know, and take 10 wickets. Um, obviously, in that scenario, it wasn't like that at all. It was like it, it walked back into a morgue because, you know, people were kind of, you know, keeping their heads down and nobody really know, knew where to look or what to say, um, knowing how disappointed um, Hick would have been, Hickey would have been um, not to have made that 100. But... On the, the other side of the story is that, it, that Mike Atherton was absolutely correct. You know, they ended up not winning the Test match. They went off for, for rain and bad light with Australia eight down and didn't win the game. So, you know, <laughs> and, and you know, the, 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 the story goes that, that Ath had given him plenty of warning, um, you know, that the declaration was coming. Um, he was patting back maidens and not, not taking any risks. Um, and therefore, you know, the, the history will say that, that the captain was right. Yeah, I remember, I remember vividly. It was uh, it was January. It was uh, it was a it was a school holidays, obviously. And uh, I remember sitting eating toast in the living room, and it was daylight outside, which goes to show it was late in the day in Australia. And mm. I remember watching. It was the last ball, I think, before the declaration was pretty much a long hop. Well, certainly wouldn't be a long hop to anyone with any intent. And he went back with a vertical bat and blocked it straight back down the pitch. And seconds later, the camera panned up to the dressing room, preempting what was about to happen. So everyone apart from Hick, you know, I was sitting there thinking, get on with it. And Athos was saying, get on with it. And clearly the cameraman was thinking, surely he's got to get on with it. And then mm. lo and behold, the camera panned to Athos and out comes the, the, the beckoning hand. And the rest is, rest is history. And as it happened, mm. you know, England came within two wickets of winning that test. In fact, yeah. I think Malcolm dropped a catch when uh, technically the game was already over because England needed at uh, mid off, I think England mm. needed two wickets with one ball remaining, and he dropped the catch off the last ball, which just summed it up really. Just go, went to show how close England did get in spite of in spite of everything, and obviously oh, having having recalled Angus Fraser uh, 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 due to injury issues, and their body rocked up with a crucial five for that nearly turns the tide <laughs> and proves a point I mean, or two. The extraordinary thing it tells you a bit about the, I guess, the mindsets and, the, and perhaps fragility of, of English confidence, even when setting uh, a target of, of 449. So that Australia put on 200 for the first wicket and were, were kind of giving it a go until it rained, and then they started to lose wickets. Uh, and yeah, eventually clung on um, three, four, four for seven. Um, but then England popped up with a win in the very next test uh, in Adelaide, uh, Miller, and uh, Which makes no a, sense a real sort of <laughs> a, a real kind of uh, everyone chipping in type effort as well. Well, totally. I mean, the the the, 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 the fundamental the fundamental reason why England won that test was they were forced to play five bowlers because they had they had no batsmen left. They had they had Bumpy Rhodes who couldn't buy a run at, at six. Chris Lewis at seven, or was it seven and six? I can't remember. But either way. You know, Chris Lewis and and, and, a, and a runless Rhodes were England's pivots at six and Engine seven. It, it was <laughs> it, they were absolutely on their knees. I think Hick was broken by that stage. Stewart had gone, Goff had gone. I mean, they were they were they were had absolutely living on scraps. And lo and behold, out comes Daffy Afraitis scrapping with with Crawley to to get the defendable total. And then Devon Malcolm storms in with absolute wheels in the second innings. I think they bowled him out of 156, but Malcolm took three of the first 
four wickets in a, in a, in a lethal new ball spell. And, um, you know, he was able to do that because by having five bowlers, a five man attack, they weren't using Malcolm as the holding bowler to, you know, forcing him to bowl 45 overs in innings and a lost cause. He was able to come in and, and, and ping it down at, at, at proper licks. So it was, uh, England, England were in a, in a, in an, Odd position that you know. For once, they were able to. You know, they had. They had Tuffers, they had um, De Freitas, Lewis, and and and, mm. and did Gat make a hundred that test? Gat made Gat made a revolting hundred. It was in the an, first innings. It was it was it was yeah. it was the disgusting last stand from the old man. It was it was one of <laughs> one of the one of the great filthy hundreds I've ever, I've ever been privileged privileged enough to watch. But uh, <laughs> but no, yeah, I mean you know he he and Gooch. Sadly, even Gooch was on his last legs by then and. But you know, I remember as well. Just looking at the, I think it was Wisden Cricket Monthly had a had a cover um, of the, uh, I think it was Atherton, Gooch, and Gatting on the cover, sort of as England fly out. And there's the new captain Athers with his predecessor Gooch, as well as the guy who captained the '86 to the victorious to eight years earlier. I mean, you do have to wonder. I mean, you know, Athers all this talk about trying to build a, a young and vibrant new side, and he gets yep. lumbered with. With these two guys as, 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 as peering over his shoulder every step of the way, you don't envy him. Don't but again, envy that, again, that was worn. That was all. That was worn again. You know, Gat was <laughs> was rightly or wrongly was considered to be the you know the best player of spin in the country, and and Warren terrified the selectors into deciding that you had to take both of these old guys. Um, fat, you know, Gooch, magnificent player. No, no disrespect meant. Um, uh, certainly, no disrespect meant at all. But, you know, Australia is no country for old men when it comes to touring. It just isn't. It's a brutal place to play um, with the huge grounds and the heat and all the rest of it. And um, to have both of them, you know, potentially, well, not potentially, I think both of them were earmarked to be in the starting 11 from the beginning, you know, was one, fine. Both, no. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's, a, that's the story of the trip, I guess. Like yeah, Smith the, uh... didn't go, which is just extraordinary. No, no, no Smith. Yeah. Yeah. No Smith, which made no sense. Again, this, 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 you know, he wasn't even the most conspicuous victim in 1993, but by some sort of jungle drum rumor mill, uh, he couldn't, he, he couldn't face Warren. He was, he was, he was shot to bits by Warren. Um, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, he was talking about it when his autobiography came out last year. You know, the more, the more, poor, more, the more that people talked about it, the more that he innately fragile, Started to believe it, and so you know, of course, it didn't help. He was playing at Hampshire and 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 getting the full repertoire in the nets there as well. But you know, to go on an Ashes tour without Robin Smith in your ranks is is just criminally inept, frankly. Hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, that tour was the uh, the end of the road for Gooch, Gatting, um, Defratus, Lewis. Uh, yeah, Smith didn't didn't play another Ashes after that. I mean, the the one other thing it's remembered for. Um, Miller is the uh, the quadrangular series and getting knocked out by Australia, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it just just goes to show. I mean, Australia by that stage had realised that um, <laughs> that the, the, the England just wasn't uh, weren't weren't uh, sufficiently competitive. I mean, you know, you think of the the calibre of kids coming through in that Australia A team. I mean, basically, the, they they formed the backbone of the of the side that would win every World Cup going from, from uh, ni- 1999 onwards. So, uh, you know, you've got uh, like the Michael Bevan and Ponting cutting their teeth in that in that side. And, um, you know, Merv Hughes rocks up as the sort of old stager to provide a bit of bit of experience. But broadly speaking, it was the academy kids under 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 a new banner. 
and they were good enough to get to their own final. It was uh, it was it was it was heaping ignominy upon ignominy for England. Uh, and again, on those tours when in those days where you you mish, mishmash, it wasn't wasn't any separation of tests and ODIs. You you play a test, then play four ODIs, then play two tests, then play more ODIs. So you know England just didn't know where they were coming or going half the time. It was uh, yeah, must be must be exhausting, and I, I can't imagine. It was exhausting enough watching it than trying to keep up with the with the movements, let alone playing it. Exhausting indeed. So much so that you've earned yourself a breather. In part two, we'll revisit Edgbaston and all that as Australia strike a rare brum note before normal service resumes, then head back down under for a Boxing Day cracker at the MCG. Until then, stay safe and thanks for listening.